So regardless, really, of where you find yourself spiritually, if you identify yourself as a Christian, if you don't identify yourselves as a Christian, or really if you don't kind of know how to identify yourselves, um, we're really glad that you're here and so glad that you've chosen to spend um, your evening kind of hanging out with us and working through what we work through here. And what we've been doing this semester is uh, we've been walking our way through the book of Exodus. And to kind of set up where we are this week, um, I'll just start this way. I heard a couple weeks ago about this cognitive research project that was done by these neurological scientists. And they hooked up stuff to people's brains, and then they gave them uh, certain words and information to see kind of what lit up in their head. And so they would say a word from a foreign language, and one little part of their brain would light up. They would say a word in their native language, and more of the brain would light up. They would give a sentence, like a, a fact, in their native language, and even more of their brain would start lighting up. And then when they told a story, it's like the whole brain started kind of just activating like crazy. Like all the lights went off in your brain. And I think that that really tells us something interesting, that we have an intrinsic connection with stories. Stories grab our attention. Stories enamor us. Stories capture our imagination. And you know it, too. I know it, too, because especially when I'm teaching, anytime you're te- you know, I'm teaching or you've been to a class or the professor or me start launching into a story, everybody looks up and stops texting. You know, it's like you finally start paying attention because stories grab your attention. The reason I bring that up to kind of set up where we're going tonight is the story of Exodus does not come to you as a collection of facts. It's not a textbook about God. It's a story. And I think that that's really interesting, that it comes to you as a story for you to be invited into how you might live and participate in it. And so really, that's the question that we've been asking all semester, is what is your particular story, and does your story fit with this story? And so tonight, we really come to the action, kind of the, the action-packed part of the story of Exodus, where we get into the ten plagues. And we're not going to look at all of them, because all ten plagues cover six chapters, so we'd be here forever just reading it. So we're just going to look at one little representative slice of them all, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. So with that in mind, uh, we're, we're in Exodus chapter 10, and I'll read, or you can follow along behind me. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This is God's word for us 
tonight. Let me pray before we consider it. Father, we're grateful for uh, just this chance to be together. We're grateful that your mercy meets us every moment. And so, Father, regardless of how we find ourselves tonight, we pray that you would meet us. I know that some of us in this room are just tired, exhausted from a very busy semester, just already ready for spring break. Some of us in here are just buried under guilt of bad decisions that we've made this semester or are making currently. Some of us in here are just stressed out and worn thin with all that needs to be done, all that is required of us. Others in here are just really angry, angry at you, angry at life, angry at their parents, angry at professors, angry at roommates. Some of us are really joyful, excited to be here. And so, Father, regardless of where we find ourselves, we would ask that you would meet us, that you would teach us, that you would make yourself available to us, draw us to yourself, that we may know and behold the beauty that you have and that you are. And we would pray all of this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, a lot of y'all have given me a hard time recently, especially because of the way that I've been spoiling a lot of movies in RUF, and so I'm going to try to not spoil this movie, but you've, you should have seen it by now, but it's the movie Taken. If you haven't seen the movie Taken, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but you kind of know what happens by the title. The, um, uh, the story begins this way, that there is a, uh, a, a young girl and one of her friends, I guess they're in college or something, they go over to Europe for a trip. They're in high school, okay? Thank you. They go over to Europe for a trip, and... Um, when they're there, uh, they get situated in their house, and some men come to abduct them, and one of, the, one of the girls sees from across the house her friend being abducted, and so she calls her dad real quick. And the dad's kind of talking her th- through what to do, and eventually the, the abductor comes in and gets her and leaves the phone behind. And then there's this really poignant conversation between the dad and the abductor. And the dad is, you know, Liam Neeson, who is kind of this, you know, Chuck Norris type figure in this movie who just like kind of wipes out a fourth of Europe in the process of getting his, <laughs> his, his daughter back. But here's what he says to the abductor when the abductor picks up the phone. Here's what he says. I'm not spoiling anything because it's like in the first like four minutes of the movie, but here's what he says. He says this. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. It's an amazing little quote there. And the reason I bring that up is because the plagues can be really confusing and offensive to people. Think about God sort of dumping these plagues on the people of Egypt. But I think what's behind the plagues is something like that speech. It is, the, it is the heart of a father that is looking at somebody that has literally taken his people, his children. They've been taken, they have been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And the father is looking at them and he is saying, I am going to get them back. And if it requires violence for me to get them back, I will do so. And that's what he does. And so he launches into this, all these plagues to get them back, and they get more and more intense as they go. There's 10 of them, so it happens over and over and over. First one happens, he turns the, the Nile River into blood. And that doesn't change Pharaoh's heart. He's still resisting. 
And so the Lord cranks up the intensity and does another plague and brings in all these sort of this influx, nasty frogs. And that doesn't change the, heart, the Pharaoh's heart. And over and over and over until at last, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, the people of Israel are finally liberated from bondage. But until then, let's just sort of camp in the plagues for an evening, <laughs> which sounds fun. And, um, but what do the plagues teach us? I mean, what in the world is going on? What, what can we learn from the plagues? Well, I, I think we can learn at least three things, at least three things. And so I, I just want to highlight three things that we can learn. Really what they teach us are the impotence of other gods, the foolishness of our sin, and the faithfulness of our God. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Those are the three things I think that the plagues teach us. They teach us the impotence of other gods. They teach us the foolishness of our own sin and the faithfulness of our God. Okay? Here's the first thing. The impotence of other gods. Now, to to get into this, the the, the context of this goes back to chapter 5, which if you were here last week, we looked at last week, when Moses approaches Pharaoh and basically says, I've got a message from God, and the message is, let my people go so that they may worship me. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In other words, like, I don't care about your God. Who is God that I should obey him? And that kind of what kicks off this massive confrontation between Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Egypt. And so what he does, if if you were to read all six chapters about the plagues, God explains over and over and over and over, the reason why he's bringing about these judgments is this, so that the Egyptians would know that Yahweh is the Lord and there is no other. He says that like over and over and over. I'm doing this so that they will know that the God of the Bible is the only God and there's no other God. And the way that he goes about this process, this demonstration of his sovereignty, of his uniqueness, of his power, is to go after the Egyptian gods. In fact, if you look at chapter 12, verse 12 of Exodus, here's what it says. It says, God says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And so there's actually, I know this may sound, this is kind of a nerdy way to start, but I think it's important. There's a lot of historical scholarship that that confirms that what's going on in these plagues is, is God basically deconstructing the entire Egyptian religious worldview. So, for example, uh, the, the, the Egyptians um, had three different gods that were devoted to the Nile River. It was a source of life for them. It was a source of power for them. They, they wrote hymns about the Nile River. It was, it was life to them. And in the very first plague, God turns it to blood, literally demonstrating that your gods become a bloodbath to my power. What, is, what, what was once a source of life to you is now a source of death to you. The Egyptians also um, worshipped a god called Hathor, Hathor, which was the goddess of love, joy, and beauty, which was represented by a cow. I think it's kind of funny that the god of beauty is represented by a cow. But what does God do in the fifth plague? He devastates all the livestock. Egyptians also worshipped the sun god called Re, R-E. Ray, the sun god. And what happens in the ninth plague, the plague that we just read about? He blots out the sun, turns it dark. I know you're all thinking, okay, who cares? What in the world? Who cares about this? Here's why this matters. 
With each of the plagues, God is basically deconstructing the Egyptian worldview, all of their gods, and basically saying, you think your gods can save you. Look at how impotent they are. You think your gods can protect you? Look at how weak they are. They just fall to ashes underneath my power, underneath my sovereignty. And what we really do basically learn here, here's the first thing that we learn about the plagues. What they're teaching us is they're showing us, they're showcasing for us the impotence of all other gods. Now, I know, most likely, no one in here is worshiping the sun or worshiping the river or whatever. Maybe, maybe that's you, I don't know. But my guess is, uh, if you're not worshiping that, you're worshiping something else. Meaning, what I mean by worship is every, every person in this room, myself included, is staking your life and your hopes and your dreams on something. You look to something to get meaning and purpose and joy in your life from. And what we learn from the plagues is whatever that is, if it's not the God of the Bible, it's a house of cards waiting to be blown over. I mean, think, think of it like this. Uh, some of you really do look to um, and spend so much of your energy and devotion and time to being fit, to just having um, the, the rightly shaped body. And you really do think that if I can get that body, if I can get, be, be at that weight, if I can fit into that size, that will be the thing that will save me. In other words, that'll, that'll be the thing that will protect me from feeling insignificant, from feeling worthless, from feeling unattractive, from feeling small. So you look to being fit to be the thing that will really give you meaning, really give you purpose in life. Others of you, you don't care about getting fit, you care about being rich. So you work hard to get the good grades so that you can get the good internship, so that you can get the good job when you get out of here, so that you can have the house that you want, you can drive the car that you want, you can have the latest iPad that you want. Because being rich will be the thing that will save you. Being rich will be the thing that will protect you from feeling insignificant. It'll protect you from social exclusion. It will save you. It will protect you. And so what we, what we really learn is these are your gods. Functionally speaking, even though you may say in your head, no, I believe in the God of the Bible, functionally, the way that you live your life, what you're really serving, what you're really worshiping are these different things, and the plagues show us they can't save you. They can't protect you. Do you really think being fit or being rich or being popular or getting other people's approval, whatever it is that you're serving, do you think that those things can save you from tragedy, save you from depression, save you from death? They can't. They're completely impotent to save you and protect you in the ways that you actually need them to. But actually, not only can your gods not save you, they, they actually don't even satisfy you. They don't save you or satisfy you. And here's what I mean by that. Here's an image. Um, last fall, I took, my wife and I took our kids out to get frozen yogurt at one of the like 800 Froyo places in Knoxville. And um, our son, who was one year old at the time, I had finished eating kind of most of mine. I had a little bit left in the bottom of my you know, like bucket that they give you. And so I wanted him to try it. He had never had ice cream or frozen yogurt kind of stuff before. And so I had him on my lap, and so I scoop up a little bit in the spoon. I'm trying to get it in his mouth. He doesn't, he doesn't want it. He doesn't care about it. But I know if he just tastes it, it's going to be game on. He's going to love this stuff. So I kind of force it into his face, and he, he, he's you know, kind of weirded out at first, and he's kind of 
you know, I guess rolling around his tongue. Well, he didn't have teeth. And so he, was swa- he swallowed it, and as soon as he swallowed it, his mouth opened again, like, give me more. And so really, now I'm shoveling stuff into his face as fast as I can pump it in. And as soon it was, as it was over, there's no more left. I got, I got, there's no more frozen yogurt left for you, man. I'm sorry. I don't know if you've ever seen kids do this, but when they get upset, they do this big inhale, and there's like a two-second silence, and then they just scream at the top of their lungs as loud as I can. And so that's what he's doing. He's just screaming in the middle of this frozen yogurt place, and I was like, dude, I get it, man. I, when that's, I feel the same way when it runs out. I'm just too, uh, I'm too embarrassed to actually scream when it's out, but I'm doing the same thing inside. And, and so I really do think that's, that is an apt... That is an apt picture of what our hearts do when we're connected to other things that aren't God. They never, they never provide enough. They never satisfy. We're always left wanting more. I mean, just think about it. Has anyone ever gotten fit or in shape or to the weight that you want, and you get there, and you're like, okay, I'm good now. Like, I can stop working out. Like, I'm good. I'm content. I've hit, I've hit my mark. I'm good to go. No, you're always wanting more. You're always insecure. Has anyone ever gotten to the point where they want financially and said, you know what, I'm good. Like, I don't, I don't want any more money. I don't need any more money. No, no. Every, anyone who is always craving money always feels like they're never getting enough. They need more. They need more. They need more. They need more. And, and this is what the plagues show us, is that... Whatever it is that you're serving, whatever it is that you're worshiping, whatever you are staking your heart on, if it's not the God of the Bible, it's completely impotent to save you and to satisfy you. That's the first thing we learn. But it goes a step deeper. The second thing that we learn from the um, plagues, we don't just learn the impotence of other gods, we learn the foolishness of our sin. The foolishness of our sin. Now, if you think about it, here's where I get this from. Maybe you noticed how just if I can put it this way, natural, these plagues actually are. All of them, except for the last one, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, all of them except for the last one are basically ecological disasters. And if these were just, you know, naked expressions of God's power, if these were just basically God flexing, you would expect maybe a little bit more kind of Hollywood special effects to it. But the reality is, is there's no, there are no Hollywood special effects to it. There's no lasers or like fireballs or like the Egyptian skin melting off of their face. He could have done that. But instead you get like frogs and you get like darkness and like flies. It's very, there, there's, there's almost an, a very normal element to these sort of plagues. And, and here's why. Commentators point out that what's going on with these plagues are are what they call creation reversals. Creation reversals. In other words, what God is doing is he's he's undoing creation. Creation is an establishment of order, an establishment of beauty, an establishment of design. The plagues are an undoing of orders, bringing in disorder, bringing in disintegration, bringing in chaos. So think about it. You go back to Genesis 1, when God creates all things. On day one of creation, God creates light. What do you see with the ninth plague? God blotting out the light. It's creation reversal. On day two, you get God creating, uh, bringing in all the waters together to be a source of life. Well, what did we just see? The first plague, God turning a source of water into blood, into a source of death. 
Day three of creation, you get vegetation, you get livestock. On days, um, what is it? On plagues seven and eight, all the vegetation, all the livestock are killed. Creation reversal. So why does this matter? Here's why this matters. Do you remember what Pharaoh said is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? He, he, he refuses to submit his life to God's agenda. And the consequence of that is it ushers in and brings in disorder, chaos, and disintegration. The, the, the world, the way that it was intended to be, gets undone, and his world gets turned upside down. And here's why this matters for you. Um, actually, let me start it this way. Um, my, my niece, I have a niece named Lily. She's seven, eight now. She's seven or eight now. And um, she's always, her whole life, had really chronic stomach issues. And she was just recently taken to a doctor this last fall. They had all kinds of tests on her. And she was diagnosed uh, with celiac disease. If you don't know what that is, it, it's a, basically a hyper, hyper form of, it's a hyper allergy to gluten. So her whole life she had been fed, you know, given gluten and it was just kind of wrecking her digestive system. So the doctor looked at my sister, Lily's mom, and said, you have to completely overhaul her diet. She cannot have any wheat, any gluten, even a crumb of it. Otherwise, she's going to get sick. Now, what if my sister had said, who are you that I should obey you? You can't tell me what to feed my kids, what not to feed my kids. She would have been a fool if she had done that. She would have been a fool to look at someone that knows what her child needs, knows how her child operates, and to actually know how the kid is designed in a way that will actually enable her life to flourish. She would have been a fool to look at those instructions and say, who are you that I should obey you? But yet, when it comes to God, that's exactly what we do. When we look at God and say, who are you that I should obey you? You can't tell me what to think about sex. You can't tell me how to relate to alcohol. You can't tell me how to relate to sleep. When we're doing that, we're basically, in that scenario, we're, we're foolish. We're, we're not just being bad and breaking rules and sinning. We're just being foolish, and we're ushering in a creation reversal into our life. We're ushering in chaos. We're ushering in disintegration. And so think about it. I mean, you have felt this personally in your own families. So let's, zero, let's zoom out a little bit and just look at your family for a second. For some of you... Your dads have not submitted their lives to the God of the Bible, but have rather functionally submitted their life to the God of success, to the God of their career. They've lived for their career. And you've felt the fallout of that. You've felt the disintegration that that brings into your family, where you feel the neglect. You feel, yeah, sure, he provided for you. He got you a lot of stuff. He gave you a lot of gifts, but you didn't get him. You, you feel the neglect of that. You feel the ache of that. You feel the hurt of that. That's chaos. That's creation reversal. That's the fallout of someone who's lived their life for someone that's not God. Maybe some of you have felt it with your mom. Where some of you, I'm guessing that your moms did not submit their lives to the God of the Bible, but rather submitted their life to the God of having other people love them and approve of them. That they had a deep and a profound need to be loved and approved of and to be accepted. And the way that that fleshed out was in their appearance. And the way that that affected you was that you were basically 
you felt the weight of having to be perfect because you were basically just an extension of her. You were an appendage of her. And so you felt the pressure that she put on herself to be perfect. And what that meant for you is that you have felt your whole life that you've never been able to measure up. You've never felt good. You've never been able to say that you're good enough. And you're always exhausted. That's the creation reversal. When you submit your life to something that is not God, that's the fallout that happens. But it's not, okay, it's not just with your family. If you zoom in and think about your own life, I mean, for those of us in this room that have used our sexuality in a way that is outside of God's intended purposes, you know about the chaos that that brings into your life. It's not just the guilt, although that is something, but, it, but it's so much more, there's so much more damage that happens to you, to the other person, to the whole system of things. You know, it, for some of you, when you've made work, basically the functional God of your life, you know, you, you've so prioritized efficiency and productivity that you're going to do whatever it takes to work and to get ahead. I mean, you have felt sort of the chaos of that, the creation reversal of that, right? Where you feel stressed, you feel anxious, you feel exhausted, you feel the pressure. This is what, this is, this is what we learn from these plagues. When you say to the Lord, basically, I, I know what, how you want me to live my life, but who are you that I should obey you? You're introducing chaos. You're living chaos. You're experiencing the, the creation unraveling, un, you know, being reversed in your basic experience. So that's the second thing that we learn, which really leads us to the last thing. Because the last thing is, okay, well, then where do we go from here? If, if the plagues teach us the impotence of other gods and they teach us the foolishness of our own sin, beautifully, they also teach us the faithfulness of our God. Because like I said at the beginning, the plagues, the plagues are, if plagues are creation reversals, if judgment is creation reversal, then salvation is creation restoration. Okay? If, if a form of judgment is the undoing of creation, then salvation must be the putting it back together again, to mending that which is broken, to bringing everything to rights, to healing that which is diseased. And so, like I said at, at the beginning, God intensifies over and over and over. He does 10 plagues over and over to get these people out. And what that really shows you is that God is willing to be committed to these people over the long haul. He's willing to do whatever it takes to release his people. We see his faithfulness displayed in a beautiful way by just the fact that he's doing 10 of these things. He, he could have stopped with one and said, that didn't work, okay, I'm, I quit, I give up. But 10, boom, 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 boom. He's committed to busting his people out. So committed is he that centuries later, even after they're broken out of political bondage, God sees that they're still in bondage, not to a foreign nation, but to their own selves, to their sin, to death, to darkness. And so God is so committed to saving his people that he says, okay, centuries later, I'm going to come down myself and liberate them in the person and in the work of Jesus. And so when Jesus comes down and he gets here, what do we see him doing? He's doing miracles. Have you ever thought about Jesus' miracles that, again, they're not really like naked expressions of God's power. 
I mean, Jesus could have walked around and, and, and flexed in, in a certain way to just do cool stuff, but you never see Jesus, like, levitating. You never see Jesus, like, throwing out fireballs from his wrists. What is he doing? His very first miracle, as it's recorded in John, is he turns water, not into blood, but into wine, to keep a party going. You see Jesus multiplying bread and loaves, not just because that's a cool special effect, but to feed hungry people. You see him healing people that are sick. You see him bringing back people from the dead. You put all of his miracles together, and what do you see him doing? He's restoring creation. He's looking at a world that is broken, that is damaged, that's not the way it's supposed to be, and he comes in and says, I'm going to start fixing it. And to basically demonstrate, this is what I'm committed to. Because people were not born to die. So he raises them. People were not created to be hungry, so he feeds them. People were not created to be sick, so he heals them. Jesus' miracles are anti-plagues. So committed is he to restoring the world that he loves. But it's not just in the miracles that you see him committed to restoring everything that is broken. You see it ultimately demonstrated, of course, at the cross. Because at the cross, what Jesus is undergoing is the ultimate form of judgment. The ultimate plague comes down on him so that everything can be made right again. And so what happens? At the ninth plague, you have darkness for three days. It's very interesting that at the cross, Mark chapter 15 reads this. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three days of darkness, three hours of darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, numbers mean something in the Bible. Numbers kind of have um, interesting symbolic points to them. And the number three in the Bible really does represent completion, perfection. So the fact that there was darkness for three hours indicates that this was, this was a complete plague, a complete form of judgment that is being poured out on Jesus at the cross, and he is being annihilated there. But what that shows you is that the judge of heaven has come down not to give judgment, but to bear judgment for the very people like you and me that deserve it. The people that do throw up our middle finger to him and say, who are you that I should obey you? I'm going to do what I want to do. The very people like you and me that serve and worship a million other gods except him. He comes down and takes our place at the cross for people like you and me, idolatrous rebels. I'll end with this. Um, A couple years ago, I heard this story, and it's really stuck with me. But back in the 1980s, the band U2, you even are still familiar with them, if they're around. I guess they're still, they're kind of around. Um, in the 1980s, um, U2 was, was doing a big tour through the South. And just to kind of bring you back into sort of historical, cultural moment, there was a lot of political and social unrest in our country in the, in the 80s, primarily around um, racial issues, because there was a lot of advocacy for MLK Day to become a national holiday. And, um, you know, I guess kind of stereotypically, more people in the South were upset about that. And um, U2 is very politically minded, as you know, and very outspoken in their political views. And so they have this song, uh, what's the name of the song? Pride in the Name of Love. 
that overtly talks about Martin Luther King and talks about sort of their political stance towards, of course, making this a national holiday. So they're playing this one show that, that, that's coming up uh, at this one city in the deep south. And when they get there, the FBI approaches Bono and approaches you two and says, look, we have, we have received multiple credible threats on your life. If you play this show, there's going to be 60 or 70,000 people out there. There is no way that we can protect you. We strongly urge you not to play the show. But of course, you know, do rock stars back down from the FBI? No. So they played the show. But you know, before the show, they had all kind of gotten together and realized, man, this really may, this may be it. Like, this may be the last show that we do. Like, like this, this really may happen. And so they decided, okay, we're going to go through this. So they get to that song, they, you know, they play through the set, they get to that song, Bono goes through the first verse, nothing's happening, no gunshots, and he gets to the chorus, and he realizes, okay, the chorus is like, this is sort of the big moment, like if it's going to happen, it's going to happen here. And so, you know, he's a rock star, so he says, I'm going to go out with a bang. So he closes his eyes and kind of spreads out his hands, and he just freaking, you know, belts it out, gets through the chorus, Realizes, okay, no, no one's, I'm, you know, I made it. No one has shot me yet. And he opens his eyes, and he sees the back of his bass player. The bassist had come over and was standing between Bono and the crowd and was just staring down <laughs> the audience. And Bono said, you know, when I saw Adam, the bassist, do that, he said, that just made me sing like I've never sung before. And so what happened in that scenario is that the bassist knew that his brother needed a defender, somebody to stand between the crowd and him, and so he did it. And that is a beautiful image of what Jesus does on the cross, that he stands between you and the ultimate plague, the ultimate judgment of God. He doesn't just risk his life, though. He gives his life. He bears the ultimate plague so that there would be no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And it is that sort of act of grace that really, when you get it, when you see it, that will invigorate you to sing like you've never sung before, to live like you've never lived before. So really my invitation for you tonight is this. If you can buy into that reality, that the gospel would be that sweet for someone to come and to take your place, for someone who's rebellious, idolatrous, disobedient, someone like me, that for you to see that and for your heart to be moved in such a way to say, okay, from here on out, I, I am going to go to war with anything else that competes for my heart's affection. If there's anything else that is luring me, tempting me to plant my heart's you know, a, affection in that, I, I'm going to violently cast it out. Will you do that? Will you take stock of whatever it is that you're living for, that you're sucking meaning from, and to see that it's ashes compared to the glory and the weightiness that you have in Jesus? Will you go to war with those things? Will you say, of course I will, of course I will obey you. Of course I'll submit to you. You have my whole life. My whole life is yours now. And really, will you just ponder and wonder and relish in the faithfulness of our God? That's my invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you would send your son to bear the judgment that we deserve. 
to absorb the ultimate plague on our behalf. And so, Father, would that melt us from the inside out? Would that move us? Would that transform us so that we would be different people, that we would live like free human beings, that you would usher back in the order of creation, the beauty of creation, that we would start to live as we were intended to, purely by your grace, purely by your love and your blood that covers us. I need it. These folks need it. Help us to believe it and to live in light of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.